Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, well, welcome to our time of study in God's Word. This is, uh, we're going through the book of Psalms right now, uh, and today we're going to look at Psalm 14, and the title of our study is, I am the problem and Christ is a solution. Will you please join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that your Word is true, that it's reliable, that it's trustworthy, that it's without the capability of error, and it's binding on our lives, and it's for every phase and stage of our lives. So Lord, as we look at this text today, we're going to be reminded about a lot of things that are happening in our world. And so I pray, Lord, that we would be mindful that this is the Word of God, and that as we come to it, we come uh, not for our opinions, We come to be fed from your word because we believe it is enough and that it's binding on our lives. So Lord, teach us, instruct us, give us hearts that are teachable and humble before you. Because as as we study, Lord, this, this text, you use the word in our lives to speak to us through and by the word that we might grow up more into Christ. And so we thank you for your word that is living and active. It's able to penetrate into our hearts. Help us now, Lord, to hear what you have to say and to take it home into our hearts so that we might grow to be more like Christ. In Jesus' precious name, I pray, amen and amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 14. Psalm 14 says this, The fool says in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There there they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortune of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. This is the reading of God's precious, holy word. And as we come to the Word today, we are going to be confronted. Confronted by the reality of our sin, but also confronted by the beauty of Christ. (coughs) In 1908, the Times asked a number of authors to write on the topic, What is wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton's answer was the shortest one submitted. He simply wrote, Dear Sirs, I am... Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. 
In fact, Chesterton did not mean that he committed every crime on earth. His point is that what is wrong with the world is that human beings are sinners by nature and by choice. It's no use pointing the finger at anybody else. Since I am a sinner, I am the problem. Psalm 14 is a key passage of scripture that teaches us how all of humanity is ruined by sin. Our entire species, each and every single one of us, has rebelled against God. That's that's the bad news. But there's good news in the psalm. Psalm 8, which we've considered already, teaches our glory as human beings. We are we are crowned with glory and honor, Psalm 8, 5 says. In fact, God created us in his image. Psalm 8 and 14 are like bookends for the short section of the psalms that describe the nature of humanity. We are once glorious and fallen. We carry both the honor of being uh, of bearing God's image and the shame of sin. Psalm 14 ends this section with the hard news of our disobedience. Like Chesterson, we need the honesty and the courage to say, I am the problem. In fact, most of our world today ignores this diagnosis. In fact, even in the church today, we, we speak about our sin as a mistake. Or we're just broken. No, friends, we are, we are sinners by nature and by choice. To sin means that you miss the mark. To broken means that you like broke a bone or broke your broke your hand or or broke your foot or broke your knee, but that's not what sin is. Sin is missing the mark of God's holiness and breaking his law. Now sometimes a patient will block out what a doctor has told us because it's hard to hear the, the scriptures repeat Psalm 14 two more times to make sure we're listening. Psalm 53 quotes Psalm 14 in its entirety with only a few minor changes. In Romans 3, 10 through 12, Paul quotes Psalm 14 to show that everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, is under sin. And when God speaks once, we better listen. And when he speaks twice, we need to remember. When God speaks three times, we need to study his words. We need to take them apart. We need to ponder them. And we need to never, ever let them go. Psalm 14 also ends the first short section of the psalm, which includes Psalms 3 through 14. You have probably noticed by now that Psalms 3 through 13 are full of, of danger, full of sorrow. And time and time again, David calls out for God to rescue him. In fact, in this context, Psalm 14 teaches that David is experiencing these problems because of the sin that affects humanity. Matthew Henry says this, in all the Psalms from three to this one, David had been complaining of those that hated him, that persecuted him, that insulted him, that abused him. And now here he traces all those bitter streams to the fountain, the general corruption of nature, and sees that not only his enemies only, but all the children of men are corrupted. Some people today suggest that, that the problems with man are not sin. The problem is global climate control. The problem is we're not doing a good enough job at this and that and this and that. But all of these things, all of those solutions, they all for, fall short of the reality. Like Chesterson said, I am the problem. 
David's experience, though, points us forward also to Jesus Christ and the hatred he endured in his life. If we read Psalm 14 with an eye to Christ, we, we, we reject Jesus and his rightful authority as our king because we're sinners by nature and by choice. After all, Psalm 2 tells us that the world is set against Christ because the world is ruined by sin. And we need to understand the awful truth of our sin before we can ever have a good understanding of the person and work of Christ. In fact, we need to stop there for just a second. I need to say something about that. We are so easy, easily persuaded as Christians. Make a beeline to the cross. There's nothing wrong with going to the cross. But if you never, if you never meditate and understand the depths, even, even scratch the surface, and have a good understanding of the doctrine of sin, my friend, you're going to be in mortal danger. We are sinners by nature and by choice. And yes, as Christians, we are redeemed. We are reconciled to God. And yet, we are, as Luther said, at the same time, sane and sinner. We have indwelling sin. And that's why we have a need, as 1 John 1.9 says, to confess our sins to God because he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We need to, we need to really ponder that. The Puritans spent so much time, men like John Owen, uh, in his book on mortifying sin, on the topic of indwelling sin, that men like J.C. Ryle in, their, in his book, classic book, Holiness, spent so much time on indwelling sin because he understood that, yes, we are saved by the grace of God, and yet we have a need to kill our sin. As I recently heard somebody say on, on a sermon, in a sermon, we need to have a good murder. And by that, we're not saying, he wasn't saying, you know, you go and murder somebody. He's talking about his sin. He needed to have a good murder of his sin every day. That's the idea behind what it means to mortify or to put to death or to kill your sin. Psalm 14 ends with David's hope and prayer. In verse 7, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. We will not long for a Savior like David did until we see our sin like David did. So this can be a moment of God's grace for you today. And as we walk through Psalm 14, you, you are about to, about to see your need, perhaps, for Christ for the very first time. And for the very first time, you may realize that you are a sinner who needs to be forgiven through Jesus. You, you will never love Jesus and be desperate for his help until you can say, I am a sinner, I am the problem, and Christ is a great Savior. And so the outline for this psalm hangs on four words, rejection in verse 1, inspection in verses 2 and 3, miscalculation in, in Psalm four, uh, uh, 14, uh, 4 through 6, salvation in Psalm 14, 7. May God open your eyes through the illumination of his spirit to his word today. And we start today with man's rejection. In Psalm 14, 1, David describes ungodliness and his consequences, saying, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There, there is none who does Good. 
Let's stop there for just a second. How many times have you heard somebody say, I'm going to heaven, and then they tell you, because I'm a good person, I've done good things, I, I do good. But remember, this text says there's none who do, does good. In fact, Paul in, in Romans 3 would tell us that our throat is an open grave. There's, there's none who does good. In fact, there's a thought process behind sin. In verse 1, the word fool does not mean someone who's dumb or stupid. The word, As the word is used in the Bible, a fool may be quite intelligent, even well-educated, but they're morally flawed. In fact, the word implies aggressive perversity. A fool breaks his relationship with others and God and serves themselves. They have themselves on the throne. As a result, a fool uh, brings trouble on himself and those around him. The opposite of folly is steadfast love, having the wisdom to honor our relationship with God and others. And when the fool speaks to himself in his heart, this is not an emotional reaction. In the Bible, the heart is not our emotions, but rather the thinking part of who we are, the part that makes decisions and defines us as persons. You see, the fool is not a helpless victim. He knowingly and consciously commits himself to a life that denies God. The Apostle Paul describes this thought process in Romans 1, 18-23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his individual attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, and so they are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You see, the wicked, they see God's majesty in the world that he created, but they suppress the evidence. They're fools because they refuse to honor God, even though they know him. They make a deliberate choice to block out the truth. We call this general revelation. God can be known through the world in which he's made. You look at the clouds, you look out on a clear day, like here in southern Oregon, you can look out from where I live, and you can see for miles on end. You can see the beauty, you can see the, the green trees, even the brown grass, and, and other things that are brown at this time of year in southern Oregon. In summer. And, and here's the thing. You can see the glory of God. God is the one who made all things. God can be known through creation. As, as John Calvin, that great reformer, once said, creation is the theater of God's glory. When, you, when people you know, look at that James Webb Space uh, uh, Telescope, out into space, they're, they're seeing the manifold glory of God in space. When we capture pictures of that beautiful scene, you know, as the sun is about to set, we're seeing the glory 
of God's creation. When we wake up in the morning and we see the sunrise, we're seeing the glory of God's creation. When you drive past that that beautiful scenery, when you go to that waterfall, when you go on that hike and you see something that just takes your breath away, you're seeing the evidence of the glory of God in the world that he made and in the world that he upholds. And this should give you pause. It should lead you to worship the God who, who made all things and the God who made you. The one, the God, the biblical God who created you, who made you, who fashioned you in your mother's womb, and who sustains your life, who gives you breath, and who sent forth Christ the Son to pay the penalty. And this, this is what those who reject God don't do. They, they refuse to give thanks to God. They refuse to acknowledge their, their sin. Instead, they have self, as Paul says in Romans 1, they have self on the throne. Friends, today, the worship of self is alive and well with the rise of New Age thinking and theology in our day. People today think I'm spiritual, and so my spirituality is going to take me to heaven. Now, God has set eternity on our hearts, Ecclesiastes 3.11 says. We're not against being spiritual. What we are against is is if your spirituality is not rooted and grounded in the Bible and in the person and the work of Christ who alone can save and satisfy you and who one day make you fully like his son, Jesus, when you die. And guess what? Your spirituality is false. The God who created you is the one who defines the terms, he sets the boundaries, and he sets the expectation. And when you rebel against that expectation, and when you rebel against the standard that God has declared as he's revealed himself in his special revelation, the Bible, the word of God, which is the true north to your soul, then you reject God. That's what Paul is getting at in Romans 1. In fact, when, when somebody today says, and like they do in verse 1, there is no God, we, we call him an atheist. What they mean is that they don't believe that God exists or that there's spiritual life beyond this physical, material world. In fact, in recent years, you might have heard one of the more vocal atheists, such as Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins. And in fact, atheists are becoming more and more mainstream in our culture. After the, the Newtown Massacre, Susan Jacoby published an article in the New York Times titled The Blessings of Atheism, in which she argued that atheists we're in a better position to comfort parents who lost their child. Well, David is not probably not talking about atheists as we know them today. For one thing, the pagan world around Israel believed in many gods. And when Jews went astray, they didn't become philosophical atheists like Hitchens or Dawkins. They turned their back on the true God to worship idols that are no God at all. Gods that can manipulate, gods that control because they fashioned them, they made them uh, in their own likeness, in their own, according to their own philosophies. You see, they were religious, but they denied the true God, and they ran life in their own way and in their own power. And so in the deepest sense of the word, they were atheists. In fact, Job describes this sort of atheism perfectly. As he suffered and questioned God, he wondered why the wicked seemed to have such good lives while they denied God. Job 21, 13 through 16 says this, 
They spend their days in prosperity and in peace they go down to Sheol. They say to God, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we get if we pray to him? Behold, is not their prosperity in their hand? And this describes men and women today as well. Human nature is not changed. We, we tend to think of ourselves, who needs God? So we run our lives according to our own design, according to our own plan, without honoring him, without glorifying him. And so we, didn't, so we deny God any meaningful place in our lives. And we deny God any meaningful place in our decisions and our plans. God is not relevant to real life. And so functionally, we may deny that God even exists. And so when we read Psalm 14, 1, our first instinct might be to apply these words to outspoken atheists and like Hitchens and Dawkins and Jacoby. But this is really describing you and me apart from Christ. We are the fools who say there is no God. And to be honest, we must agree with the diagnosis of G.K. Chesterton, who said, I am the problem. You see, when we surrender the knowledge of God, we open the door to all sorts of depravity. And so David lists three dimensions of human wickedness. Verse 1, they are corrupt. This is an inner effect of denying God. And so the word corrupt, it means to spoil or to ruin or to act ruinously. Their corruption is infectious. They are not only perverse, but they must pervert others. If you have a bag of apples and one of those apples is bad, the rot will spread to others. You see, when men and women turn their back on God, their corruption spreads to others. And then David describes the actions that flow from their hearts. Verse 1. They do abominable deeds. Fools refuse to accept the fact that they are accountable to God. As a result, they do all sorts of perverse things. No one's going to judge me. Why not do what I want to do? Why not live how I want to do? In December 1989, the cover of The Atlantic asked the question, Can we be good without God? And the point of this article is that while Christians are not perfect, the ethics and morality we value in Western civilization, they come from the Bible. As society becomes secular, we're going to lose the foundation for ethics and morality, the article says, of Christianity declines and dies in coming decades, our moral universe, and also the relatively hu humane political universe that it supports will be in peril. Wow, we have seen that for sure in the years since 1989. And the underlying principle is that the way we behave is ultimately rooted in what we believe about God. Without God, there's nothing to hold us back from plunging into horror. There's, that's an endless pit. Sin always takes us farther than we want to go. Without God, we do abominable deeds. And in case you think that David is talking about Somebody else, he says in verse 1, there is no one who does good. The Bible says in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. The Apostle Paul himself says in Romans 7, 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me. And so when a pastor gets up to speak, you don't want him to share his heart. You want him to open up God's word, to exposit God's word rightly and to point you to Christ, verse 1 says, there's none who does good. The best thing the best of us do are still tainted by selfishness and by sin. And you might wonder, is this true? 
That seems a bit pessimistic. Is it possible that all humanity denies God and is corrupted by sin? Well, this is not David's idea. It's God's conclusion. After his thorough inspection of humanity, in verse 2, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God, in verse 2. When we deny God, that doesn't make God any less real. It doesn't stop him from being God. No matter what we as human beings think and say and, and believe, God still owns us. And he still examines our lives. He doesn't have to come look down or come down literally from heaven to know our hearts. He's everywhere. He knows everything at all times. This is a figure of speech for us to visualize God's careful inspection of our lives and of the world around us. He doesn't look up as if he's beneath us. He doesn't look over us as if he's beside us as a peer. He looks down because he is exalted high above us. The word man in Hebrew is Adam. And depending on the context, Adam can mean human beings in general or the first man God created Eve's husband. And here it means human beings, but it still carries a subtle echo of creation in the fall. The children of man could be translated, the children of Adam, a reminder of our father Adam who sinned. And as his children, we are sinners after him. What is God looking for? He wants to see if anyone has the sense to seek him. He made us. He gives us everything. He gives us life, gives us breath. He gives us brains and brawn, homes and health, friends and family, sunrises and sunsets, grass and golf, groceries and gravity and more. Will we snub this God who gives us everything? Will we even bother to thank him? He has told us how to live, that we can find joy and satisfaction in the world. Will we listen or are we fools who break the good things he has given us? Verse 3 tells us what God finds when he inspects our world. Verse 3 says this, they have all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Now, notice the words here. All, together, none. God's findings are all inclusive. He's not just talking about a few people here. He's talking about every single person, the entire human race. Verse 3 confirms what we just saw earlier. The fool is not a rare subspecies within the human race. All human beings are fools apart from the wisdom of God. And the problem here is, it's not that there's not enough religion and spirituality in the world. Most people are religious. But they do not want the God of the Bible. They don't want the true God, the one who made them. Many people reject the real God by multiplying false gods. You might, might meet somebody who says they're spiritual, right? They might even be sincere in their spirituality, but they are an atheist in the true sense of the word, they have, for they have rejected the true God. Religious activity that does not come to God through Jesus Christ revealed in the word of God is an active denial of God and by very at the very heart of the definition, it is atheism. The opposite of atheism is not religion. The opposite of atheism is true Christianity, believing the gospel of Jesus Christ revealed in the word of God. Anyone who does not believe Jesus Christ does not believe in God and is therefore an atheist in the true sense of the word. And significantly, this is not the first time that the Bible talks about God looking down to see our sin. In the book of Genesis, God looked down to inspect humanity three separate times. Psalm 14 sounds like the beginning of the flood in Genesis 6. The same word corrupt 
In, in Psalm 14, it occurs three times in Genesis 6, 11 through 13. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And now God also looked down and saw humanity's sin before he divided the world at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, 5 through 7. God came down to investigate the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah before he destroyed those cities with fire and sulfur in Genesis 18, 21. God's, God's inspection is ominous indeed. When God looks down to see that the earth is full of sin, this is the beginning of judgment. But we also need to say that the sinful world is blind to the judgment that is hanging over its head. They pretend nothing is going to happen. And verses 4 through 6 show how wrong that miscalculation is. This amazing miscalculation starts with amazing ignorance. Verse 4, Psalm 14 says, Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon the Lord? The wicked do not even have a basic knowledge of God. They turn their back on the true God. They do not seek him. As a result, they do not know him. They're lost in their ignorance. To call on the Lord in verse 4 is another way of describing a relationship with him. It means appealing to God for help or asking for his presence in worship. The wicked do not want God. They do not seek God. They do not know God. In fact, the word my people should surprise us in verse 4. If you've been tracking with the psalm to this point, we, we might not expect that God has people on this earth. When God looks down on our world, he saw that all have turned aside. There's none who does good, then not even one. So where, where did God's people come from? Well, they're not coming from seeking him on their own terms. They had turned aside too. In the psalm, we see God's rich in eternal purposes, in saving unworthy sinners. He formed his people from the very men and women who have rejected him, and we're not looking for him. This is what the Apostle Paul is talking about when he says in Romans 5, 6, and 8, But while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us, and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. You see, through Christ, God turned atheists into worshipers. When, when you already... When you and I are ready to admit I am the problem, we are ready to become one of God's reconciled people through Christ. Jesus died and rose to save sinners like you and me. Becoming one of God's people doesn't mean that your life is going to become uh, an easy bed of roses. The world devours the people of God. The two great commandments, Jesus said to love him and to love your neighbor are foreign to the fool. The picture of eating bread is particularly graphic. Bread is a staple. We eat it every day. The world devours the righteous daily and constantly. Eating bread is also normal. We don't write postcards or tweet about eating a slice of bread. It's, it's unremarkable. For the wicked, devouring God's people is a casual thing in every occurrence. And in their ignorance, they never realize that they are touching the apple of God's eye. One of the consequences of their sin is gripping fear. Psalm 14, 5 through 6 says this. They are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. There is fear today and fear 
for tomorrow for the wicked. On the one hand, they live with the constant anxiety that comes from knowing in their hearts of hearts that God will indeed judge each of us for the things that we do in this life. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. No matter how we might argue otherwise, instinctively we know that it's true. In the still of the night, guilt terrifies the wicked. In fact, the guilt of unforgiven sin is going to weigh heavy on our conscience. It's going to terrify us. We're all alone with our thoughts. This present fear will give way to an even greater terror when we stand before Christ. The presence of, of God terrifies the wicked, but it's an unspeakable joy to the people of God. If you're held hostage in a bank robbery, you're, you're going to be happy to see the SWAT team when they come through the door. But the robbers are going to be very terrified to see these very men. And this is how it is with seeing God's face too. C.S. Lewis said, in, in the end, that face, which is the delight or the terror of the universe, must be turned on each one of us, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. See, those who know God, they long to see God. We long for the salvation of God. And David looked around and he saw misery of a world that denies God and lives in moral chaos. He ends the psalm with a fervent prayer of hope and longing in Psalm 14, 7, saying, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortune of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Zion here is God's holy hill, the place where God has established his king. And when David prays for salvation from Zion, he is longing for the Messiah, the king, whom God has set over all the nations. In fact, the word, the word salvation is the Hebrew word Yeshua. The name Jesus comes from this very word. When Christ was born, he was given this very name, Jesus, salvation, because he would save his people from their sins, Matthew 1.21 says. And I can't but help think of that. When Jesus read Psalm 14 during his life, Yes, I have come. I am salvation. I am the Savior of my people. Jesus is the ultimate answer to David's prayer. Jesus is the answer to the folly of turning away from God. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, Christ Jesus became to us the wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And when we were foolish enough to say there is no God, God reached out to us and sent forth his very son to make us wise. You will not be ready to welcome Jesus until you have the courage and the honesty to say, I am the problem, Christ is the solution. And when you admit your sin, when you grieve over what you've done, when you feel the weight of God's judgment, you will be ready to pray with David, oh, that salvation would come out of Zion. You'll be ready to say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Come, wash away my sin as far as the east is from the west. Wash away the wrath of God. Make me new. You see, I am the problem, like Chesterton said. But Christ is the answer. Christ is a solution. There are people today, the statistics tell us, they, even in the church today, they do not believe that Jesus is the only way to God and that the way is narrow and that the way is exclusive and the way is restricted 
only by Jesus. Only by believing in what he has done in his death, burial, and resurrection. Instead, what we have is we have too many people minimizing our, minimizing the reality of sin, minimizing the corruption of sin, saying, you know what, we can have climate change because that's going to solve everybody's problem. We're going to have a global currency because that'll solve everybody's problem. But the problem isn't climate change. And the problem isn't global currency. And the problem isn't your, your politician of choice. The problem is, as Chesterton said, I am the problem. And the problem is we are sinners by nature and by choice. All the world's ills, they all go back to this fundamental reality. Our sin affects everything. And we wonder what's wrong with the world. You, you might even wonder what's, why, where is God when things hurt? But what you should ask is why do you do hurtful things to others? See, I am the problem. Christ is the solution. This is why Christ came under the sentence of death to pay the penalty that he did in our place and for our sin to be buried and to rise again. See, there is no other gospel. There is no other way. The way, as it's, as it's said in Lord of the Rings, the way is shut. There's no other way. The only way is through Jesus. Jesus is the only way. That's not a popular thing to say today. When you have people who suggest that they're going to go to heaven because of their good works, because of their good morality, because of their sexuality, because, 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 because. But what the psalmist in Psalm 14 tells us very clearly, we're the problem. We don't do good. We can't do good apart from Christ. That's why we need Christ. So if you've never believed, put your faith and trust, if you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, I plead with you right now to do that very thing on the basis of Acts 16.31, to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. And if you're a Christian, I want to plead with you as well. Do not ever minimize the horrors of sin in your preaching of Christ. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't minimize the horror of sin. Paul didn't in Romans 1 through 3, but he also emphasized the glory of the grace of God because he, he knew, he knew, yes, we're sinners, but Christ has come and Christ has done what he's done in his death, burial, and resurrection to save sinners. You don't believe me? Luke 19, 10 says this, Jesus came to seek and to save sinners. He came to seek. He came to save. John 10, Jesus leaves the 99 sheep to go find the one lost sheep. His point, he goes after the one lost sheep to save that sheep to restore them to God, to reconcile them to God, to preach. So as Christians, we are to go. We are to go. We are to go in the public square. 
into our workplaces. We are sent out from our local churches, wherever God has placed us, to be faithful, to preach the message of the, of the cross and the resurrection, which is foolishness to the world, but the wisdom of God. Today, we need to repent of our apathy in this regard. We need to be faithful to the word, faithful to where he's planted us, and faithful to declare what he has said. But we need to do it in a wise way. We need to do it in a truthful, and we need to do it in a loving way. My friends, let us us be faithful. Faithful to Christ, revealing the word of God. Faithful to declare all that God has said. And let us not cower in fear. Let us stand on the word of God. And let us be faithful. Let us be true to the word. And let us be bold and loving. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true and that it reveals the the real issues of our day. I'm the problem and Christ is the solution. We thank you that your word is true and that it is sufficient to address us and that it reveals a sufficient Christ to save sinners. So Lord, Lord, I, I pray for those who do not know you, that you would open eyes and ears and that you would lead them to repentance and faith in your name. And I pray for my brothers and sisters, may we be bold, may we be faithful, may we stand on the word, and may we preach the whole word, calling men and women to repent of their sin and trust in Christ. May we do it in a bold and loving way. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.